And I have to say I'm honored to be able to speak to you again. That means I didn't get the hook after the first time, so I'm able to come back and talk to you guys again. Um, and with that in mind, I also just want to say I'm, I've been inspired by what John had said last week. Uh, his vision for the church and talking about contending for the faith, contending for one another, and contending for the lost is a powerful, powerful commission for all, all of us. And the topics I'm talking about today will have a whole lot to do with uh, that vision and that mission. Uh, so... As Tom said, I have 30 years in education. I'm educated beyond my intelligence. Um, I think about things constantly. I wish I could stop thinking about things, but then I start thinking about why I'm not thinking about things. And then I start thinking all over again. So I've been teaching Sunday school here at, uh, at RBC for years and years, um, way back when. And those of you who do come to my Sunday school class know that I like to take on kind of controversial topics, challenging topics. Um, some of my, some of the uh, series that I've taught has been everywhere from cults and world religions. I talk about Christian denominations for a spin. I, I talked about systematic theology, talked about the book of Romans. Right now I'm going through a series called The Art of Christian Persuasion in a Post-Christian Culture. It's a mouthful, um, but we're having some rich conversations in there because um, it kind of reflects my background in sociology, and I, I love this topic. Um, and part of the reason for it is the topics, uh, the, the gospel itself is, is positioned within a social a setting. That's where we share the gospel. That's where the gospel has its impact. Um, so the topic of today's message is really an amalgamation of multiple series that I've taught over the past few years. Um, and I do hope our time together is fruitful. I've got a lot of information I'll share with you. Um, you might not be able to get it all. I was told once, you know, just pretend like you're drinking from a fire hydrant if there's a lot to it, um, as long as you're not thirsty when you're over. Um, when, once you're done with it, you know, I'm good with that. The verse for today as as, um, as was read this morning, as Galatians 1, 6 through 8. It says, again, that I am astonished for you um, that you are so quickly deserting him who has called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, because another gospel does not exist. Understand what he's saying here. There's not another gospel. Um, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let that person be accursed. They'll be under God's curse. Paul does continue to express his concerns over the integrity of the gospel of Christ. In additional comments he shared with the Corinthians, he said that, but I am afraid that as the serpent, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you receive, or if you accept a different gospel from the one that you have accepted, you should not be putting up with this. You put up with this readily enough. 
He says, put that, to, put that to bed. We're not going to tolerate anybody making any altercations to the gospel. And you have to understand that the evil one is still at work today. He's creating other gospels for the purposes of deceiving those both inside and outside of the church today. It is true that cults will commonly use the very same thesaurus that we use, but they will reference a completely different dictionary. As you notice in 2 Corinthians verses, those who push another gospel will always proclaim the name of Jesus, the name of Christ, but it is not the same Jesus. These deceivers will also proclaim the name of God, but it is not Yahweh God. They will also, the serpent will also suggest another gospel for, by way of salvation, but it is not the free gift given by grace through faith based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. These religions will teach mostly a work-based salvation, like Islam, Judaism, um, even Catholicism, who have added or altered, manipulated, or ignored the gospel of Christ. Satan wants to ensure that the eternal damnation has in, of as many people as possible. It is in the specifics of the gospel that Satan's distortions, his deceptions, his alter, alterations are made in producing another gospel. These other gospels will claim God's power, but they receive their power from Lucifer himself. Although greater is he that is in you and I than he that is in the world, Satan is still the most powerful creature in this world. He still roams around like a lion, seeking whom he can devour, and he will do anything in his power to skew and distort the object of our faith, that being the gospel of Christ. So there is no better way to secure the eternal damnation of billions of people than to suggest, like he did in the garden, does the gospel of Christ really say to cause us to doubt it? The focus of my message this morning will target another gospel, which I believe is even more sinister today than all the cults and the religions of the world. That is because this gospel has infiltrated both our schools, kindergarten all the way to higher education, both private and public, Christian or secular. It has infiltrated all of our societal institutions. It has even found its way into some of our churches. So how did this gospel come about? See, this, gospel, this other gospel has, not, has been at work for more than a century. It was, uh, it was initiated by well-intentioned Christian Protestants at the turn of the 20th century who wanted to help resolve the social problems in their communities that they saw increasing, such as poverty, injustice, addiction, racism, and neglect in advancing the kingdom of God. They wanted to see the kingdom of God advance. And these problems were thwarting that. So these Christian believers felt like the local church was not organized enough to deal with all of these societal ills. So this movement came to be known of what we know as called the social gospel. Parachurch organizations were formed, such as the Salvation Army, the Goodwill, YMCA, Iwanas, along with a variety of different ministries to help the homeless, to help the hungry, to help the addicted, help the outcast and the broken. All great ministries. All of these parachurch ministries came into existence as part of the social gospel movement. 
It was on the heels of the social gospel movement that Dr. Martin Luther King, we just celebrated his, his birthday recently, he came preaching the social gospel of racial equity, which from a biblical perspective it is very clear that racism of any kind is against God's will and it's abhorrent to God. But these social, these social movements slowly gravitated away from the gospel of Christ as the good works of social services and community outreach became the focus. In so doing, another gospel emerged where giving to God what is God's and giving to Caesar what is Caesar's gave way to giving to God what is Caesar's and giving to Caesar what is God's. So therefore, I speak to you today with both fear and trepidation about this other gospel that has been embraced under the guise of being the same stuff making up the social gospel. This new gospel resides exclusively in the social realm, attaching itself to social activities while trying to mirror different aspects of the Christian faith, all that we call Christian living. Although society reflects the spiritual condition of those making up that society in this new social gospel, society itself becomes responsible for individual problems, and thus it becomes imperative upon the individual to save himself or herself from these mounting social problems. So in a class, classic juxtaposition, the individual must save society that he or she is responsible for creating for the sake of the gospel of Christ. It's much like suggesting that the drowning man must save himself from drowning for the glory of God. Christian social terms such as forbearance or tolerance, unity, it's kind of wrapped up today as, as being equity and equality, diversity, inclusion, oppression, discrimination, partiality, and justice all take on different new meanings. The other gospel is known to those who consciously champion it as the contemporary critical social theory. And although this topic is incredibly politically charged, which is really a big concern of mine in the sense that some always view any political topic as a very divisive topic, my governing concern in addressing this topic this morning is for ev evangelical reasons. So with this introduction in mind, I ask you to pray with me this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to lift you up and glorify you. We want your gospel to be on display for the world to see because it's your gospel that saves. It's your gospel that redeems. It's your gospel that makes righteous. So please, through these words that I share this morning, may you be glorified in everything that's said and may you help each person that can hear my voice draw closer to you as a result. In Jesus' name, I pray this. Amen. So as I mentioned in my introduction, contemporary critical theory, which I'll call from now on CCT, has attached itself to the social components of the social gospel movement. But its origins didn't begin in America. It had its origins at the turn of the 20th century in the writings of an individual by the name of Antonio Gramsci. He actually rejected the gospel of Christ. He put all of his faith in the state to correct the social evils that he was seeing at his time. Gramsci did describe himself as a Marxist uh, who 
look towards communistic ideals that could correct social injustices in the society that he lived in. As a result of his views, he was in prison in Russia at the turn of the 20th century for his beliefs. It was during his time in prison that he reflected extensively on why the good of Marxism failed in Russia at that time. He concluded that without a cultural shift, Marxism would continue to have little to no social impact. As a result of his musings, he wrote extensively from jail in what has come to be known as the prison notebooks. This is where he talked about the long march through the institutions of a society. And as a result, his writings has dubbed him the father of cultural Marxism. So other social philosophers took up this position um, of cultural Marxism, and um, at that time, they started a school in Germany called the Frankfurt School um, before the start of World War II. Then they exported the Frankfurt School to America to Columbia University. It was social philosophers like Eric Fromm and Max Horkenheimer, what a name, Max Horkenheimer, um, and Herbert Marcuse, and they pushed cultural Marxism into American culture where it became more and more interconnected with the social gospel that was arising at the time. This amalgamation of, of two very different worldviews had the common goal of confronting societal problems, even though one sought to expand the kingdom of God by restricting sinful living, and the other sought to overthrow an oppressive social system that restricted human freedoms. This uncritical merger between these two movements um, has provided CCT with the religious language needed to work in both religious as well as secular organizations. Before this begins to sound more like a history class than a Sunday school message, I want to go ahead and turn to the religious underpinnings of this new social gospel. There are four main doctrinal components, or pillars as I like to call them, that support the gospel according to CCT. In an attempt to help you understand what CCT believes, I will speak to each of these pillars. The four pillars of the new social gospel is as follows. Pillar number one is the epistemological pillar. Epistemology is the theory of knowing, or how do we go about knowing what we know, and how knowledge is gathered. In this new social gospel, this is called standpoint theory. I will explain this pillar more in a moment. Pillar number two is the harmatological pillar. Homotology is the study of sin and the existence of evil. So in this new social gospel, this is what's called the social binary, where societal impression, injustice, and abuse targets one group of people and socially benefits or privileges the other group of people. I will explain this more, this pillar more in a minute as well. And pillar number three is the soteriological pillar, Soteriology is the study of salvation, in, um, and in this new social gospel, this is what's called social justice. It is the work, it's a work-based process of attaining societal salvation, dependent upon ongoing, ongoing social acts that do promote justice throughout all of society. And pillar number four is the eschatological pillar. Eschatology is the study of future events. In this new social gospel, this involves tearing down a hegemonic cultures that nurture social disparities in a revolutionary fashion. 
According to CCT, we are all victims of a social system that promotes the interests of those in power. I will also explain this pillar more in a minute. So with the first two pillars I want to talk about, I do perceive these first two pillars as being, oops, preconditions that are required in believing the gospel of Christ or anything religious, and thus the same thing does exist for CCT. So pillar number one, the epistemological pillar. Epistemology, now that's a mouthful, but epistemology is a precondition for saving response to the, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This epistemological precondition does not save you but one needs to think in certain epistemological frameworks in order to respond knowledgeably to the gospel of Christ. This is how you and I will know the truth, and this knowledge of the truth is going to set us free. One's epistemological orientation will provide the fundamental groundwork for believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Skeptics, pragmatists, Empiricists, relativists, existentialists, postmodernists, and pluralists are, are all likely to dismiss the gospel of Christ outright or limit and distort the gospel's message to match their preconceived epistemological positions. This is the case with CCT's epistemological framework, which is called standpoint theory. Though standpoint theory holds that there is an objective reality which defines the physical and the social environments that we interact within, human knowledge can only be drawn from one standpoint. Experiential learning is the only way that we can know anything, especially the truth. Thus, every person's perspective expresses an individual truth unique for that person. So here is CCT's definition of standpoint theory. Standpoint theory contends that humans produce knowledge. They don't discover knowledge. They actually produce knowledge. Knowledge is not something one acquires from objective sources, but only through subjective sources in conjunction with power relationships that construct and divide social groups into dominant and non-dominant categories. Experiences as the source of all knowledge are gathered within these categories that pr produce different unequal opportunities that cultivate distinct ways of knowing and being. So in response to this definition, what they're saying is society and your social position in that society creates the context in which you generate knowledge. Knowledge cannot be generated divorced from your standpoint. But even though all knowledge is generated by the individual, it draws its information from a social setting foisted upon us by society. So according to CCT, the more that you become aware of this social matrix that you live in, the more, and this is the term that you may have heard before, this is the term that's used commonly now, um, it's the more woke you become. Phrases like lived experience and speaking my truth are commonly used by those speaking the language of CCT. Now, I admit that for myself, I do admit that perceptions do seek vantage points to capture reality for understanding purposes. But one's perception does not create reality. My, re my perceptions don't create reality. They say perception's reality. I, I perceive that there's, uh, there's a unicorn at the back of the, 
auditorium. I'm not going to create a unicorn just because I perceived it. Because you and I have accumulated, I agree, we've accumulated different experiences over the course of our lives that shape our perceptions. But truth and reality does not change. They are absolute. My perception and your perception can be one of three different reflections. It can either be an accurate reflection of reality and what is real, but it can also be partially accurate perception of, rea um, of reality, and it could be on a continuum. Or my perception about something could be completely inaccurate altogether. See, but the troubling thing about a standpoint perspective on this perception is the perception itself won't tell you whether or not it's accurate. You just assume that it is. So think about it in terms of a football game. I bring this up because I bet many of you would prefer watching a football game right now than to listen to me. So I do get it. So, but referees, boy, do I love referees. You can ask my wife. Referees are employed to call penalties as they occur over the course of a game. So to accomplish this, multiple referees try to position themselves across the field of play to have the best vantage point in observing any infractions that might be committed during the course of the game. So here's the thing. Think about it. If perception creates reality, then a referee never misses a call. They get it right every single time, right? So we all know that expecting this of referees is absurd. So I can assure you that I'll probably spend the rest of my afternoon yelling at the referee for missing a call on my favorite team while celebrating if they miss a call against on my team's opponent. But that's the perspective. Standpoint theory stands in direct opposition to the epistemological positions embraced by Christianity. Therefore, standpoint theory is wholly inadequate to support belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your truth, your opinion, and or your voice must align itself in submission to the gospel of Christ. Without intellectual hu um, humility, one will continue to treat the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul calls it, as foolishness. The second pillar is the um, homotheological pillar. The second precondition is interdependent on that first pre, uh, precondition I talked about as being epistemology. But that, that is, harmatology is basically the study of sin, and CCT disciples recognize that, that evil and sin does exist within society. Through their lived experiences and the process of becoming woke, these disciples will affirm that sin and evil has gripped different aspects of society. The CCT describes this as the social binary. The social binary is the only societal absolute in the doctrine of CCT. The social binary divides individuals into two socially competing groups. These groups can be formed based upon a number of social features, such as social economic status, racial affiliation, sexual orientation, and gender. The CCT crew will say that these features are socially constructed by society to advantage some groups of people over others. These groups are typically broken down into uh, a group called the oppressor and the other groups called the oppressed. So here's how the social binary is defined by CCT disciples. 
Binaries are social constructs composed of two parts that are framed as absolute and unchanging opposites. Binary systems reflect the integration of these oppositional ideas into our culture. This results in an exaggeration of differences between social groups until they seem to have nothing in common. This dynamic is not isolated from one social group to the next. It must be understood that this, is, this dynamic can occur across multiple social groups. This is what's called intersectionality. Some of you might have heard of this before. Here's how CCT, the theory, defines intersectionality. Intersectionality is the interconnected nature of social categories such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group, regarding, uh, regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination and disadvantage. The more groups, uh, the more groups one identifies themselves in, the greater capacity they have for becoming woke, or in other words, becoming aware of societal truths. Um, such as evil and oppressed and oppressor. Now, you may wonder why a Christian church would embrace these kinds of definitions and descriptions of social categories. Well, it is because the Bible does say in Proverbs, whoever oppresses the poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Solomon goes on to also say that, then I looked again at the acts of the oppression, which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressor was power, but they had no one to comfort them. See, these verses and many more like them have driven some individuals within the church to argue that Christians are not oppressors. We don't oppress other people. So they passively adopt the definitions of CCT and go ahead and speak against it. This is why that some of my very favorite pastors, like a Tim Keller or a John Piper, have come to the defense of the CCT movement. It is also the reason why other pastors, like Dr. Vadi Bachman and Dr. Neil Shinvi, have um, has been offering warnings to the church about CCT for a decade, or if not more, by now. The pillar number three, the soteriological pillar. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Every religion, especially those that push another gospel, seeks to provide a way of salvation. Christianity is unique in that God has done the redemptive work, and only he is the one who saves. In every other cult or world religion, the individual is responsible for earning their salvation, typically through works. In Buddhism, Hinduism, or the New Age movement, you work out your salvation over the course of time in what's called reincarnation or karma. Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, Scientology, and Islam all rely on earned salvation through works. It must be said that in many Christian denominations, they do place a great deal of emphasis on good works, even if it is not for salvation purposes. But it is no different for the new social gospel movement of CCT. Good works equate to actions done to bring about justice in confronting all forms of social disparities, intolerance, explicit and implicit biases, social inequalities, racism, oppression, discrimination, and partiality. 
These social evils must be confronted at every turn by acts of social justice. CCT defines social justice as the fair and equitable division of resources, opportunities, and privileges in society. Originally a religious concept, it has come to be conceptualized more loosely as the just organization of uh, social institutions that deliver access to economic for economic benefit. This is another area that the church conflates social justice with the, with biblical justice. Micah does say he has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord has required of you, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah also continues by exhorting his readers to learn to do what is right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. These are biblical forms of justice borrowed by those who are pushing a social justice, <clears throat> form of justice. The CCT disciples bring societal salvation by their dedication to promoting social justice by good works. Pillar four is the eschatological pillar. Eschatology is the study of future events. We think of this topic in terms of end times. From an eschatological perspective, the end times references the culmination of the church when the bride meets her bridegroom in preparation for the marriage supper of the Lamb. In this new social gospel, the vision of CCT involves replacing hegemonic cultures that nurture social disparities in revolutionary fashion with a hegemony that nurtures social equity across all social groups, except for those that, of course, they would be intolerant of or they see as being intolerant. CCT defines hegemony as the social, cultural, ideological, or economic influence exerted by a dominant group where they establish social institutions guided by a set of values and ethics that the nation embraces. Cultural values are integrated into every society declaring what is good and what is evil. So ethics shape what a society values and laws enforce them. From a CCT disciples perspective, when cultural values advance oppression, whether it's sexism, racism, or a list of the phobias, those cultural values must change leading to equity and equality for all people. The CCT disciple will blame the values, most of them coming from what they see as being the Western culture infused by the Judeo-Christian faith, that fosters these hegemonic oppression that exists within American society, thus the Christian influence throughout our society needs to be modified. If not, it needs to be destroyed and it needs to be rebuilt altogether. Christianity creates an, and this is in CCT's opinion, Christianity creates an unequal playing field for all members of society where being a Christian is socially beneficial in an inequitable manner. The future vision of this new social gospel is to achieve societal utopia, where every citizen resides on, the, on a level playing field, where each person, according to his abilities, to each according to his needs, can enjoy a society free from, of oppression, class warfare, injustice, bias, partiality, racism, sexism, and, and other social inequalities. Now, I must say that the idea of a social 
utopia is very appealing and is very appealing to most Christians. We would love to live in a society free from the destructive nature of sin. But for Christians, we call this society heaven. Heaven will be free from the oppression of sin and the injustices and evil it produces. Justice will reign supreme courtesy of the gospel of Jesus Christ where all mankind, rich or poor, black or white, male or female, old or young, must find God's grace on the even, even footing before the cross of Christ. When one pretends that he or she, born with a sinful nature, can in and of their collective selves create a social utopia free from sin, what follows is nothing but self-aggrandizing foolishness. The other gospel of CCT will lead the masses down a wide road to destruction. The church must not pretend that the common terminology means that we have anything in common. We must carefully articulate the biblical definitions and descriptions of terms such as justice, oppression, inequality, racism, sexism, and other social problems with a clear delineation of what the gospel of Christ is and the effects of what the gospel and only the gospel of Christ accomplishes. So I do want to conclude my, mess, my comments here this morning by answering what I believe is the most important question of all. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now Paul tells us in Romans that it is the power of God unto salvation. And as a result, he suffers no shame in proclaiming it. To attain the gospel saving power, one must place their individual faith in the gospel in such a way that it produces unalter um, an unalterable and life-changing belief, nurtured by the conviction, convicting work of the Holy Spirit in God's redemptive plan. This redemptive plan comes with an epistemological framework where there is sinful self-awareness, and a love for God born out of his mercy and his grace that changes how we live our lives. What I just described simply, though, addresses the impact of the gospel, the effects of the gospel, but it does not define the gospel itself and why it produces such life-altering effects. So I want to talk about the six interdependent components that make up the whole of the gospel of Christ. And I say the six interdependent. They depend upon one another, and they're essential for our gospel. So essential component number one, Jesus had to be fully God. He had to be fully God. John 1, 1 through 3 and, and verse 14 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him there was nothing that was made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. See, Jesus, he is the great I am, the eternal unmade God, who made the universe, became the very source of the gospel, and the quickest way to create a cult I found in studying all of it is to deny the, de the deity of Jesus. Islam does it, Mormonism does it, Sikhism does it, and many more have rejected the deity of Christ. He becomes a good man or he becomes something else. The power and mystery of the gospel is completely enveloped in the person of Christ. This essential component of the gospel literally blows my mind. I like to think about it a lot. I like my mind blown. But this aspect of it, 
blows my mind every time I think about it. Because Jesus just doesn't get us as the CCT commercials want us to think. But he creates us and then miraculously becomes one of us. Jesus had to be God. Essential component number two. Jesus had to be sinless. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21 says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could become, be made right with God through Christ. This is why the feature of the virgin birth is an essential component of, the, component of the gospel story. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, you do not have a sinless savior. Jesus did not enter this world with a sin nature. He entered this world with his holy nature. Could Jesus have sinned? Well, I really don't know. But in the wilderness, Lucifer seemed to think that he could. He was going to take his humanity out for a spin. Hebrews tells us this, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. For those who say that Christ had an unfair advantage because he didn't have a sin nature like the rest of us, C.S. Lewis reminds us that without his sinless nature, there is no source of salvation. It is like complaining about that man who had an unfair advantage who ends up pulling you to safety from drowning in a raging river because that man had one foot on the shore. If it wasn't for that foot on the shore, you would have drowned and been destroyed completely. It is only because he has the unfair advantage that you were saved from drowning. Same thing to be true with Christ. The wages of sin is death. And when death tries to claim a sinless person, death itself unravels. It had no claim on Christ, and in Christ, death loses its sting when it tries to come and claim you and I. A sinless sacrifice is another essential component, but without the first essential component of Christ's deity, our salvation would have been lost all meaning altogether. If sinlessness was the only component necessary, a holy angel could have been our sacrifice. But this is the gospel of Christ, and no substitute was going to do. He is both the just and the justifier. Essential component number three, Jesus had to be fully man. Paul says that in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Paul goes on to say that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taken on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did Jesus become man? Well, there are a number of reasons, I believe, for that, but partly, I believe, that is to acquire the capacity for death. Jesus was not going to die in his deified state. He needed to take on the form that could die. And in human form, he acquired this capacity, and thus Jesus becoming 
Fully man was the essential component to the gospel of Christ. He couldn't be partially man or an amalgamation of God or a mixture because that part of Jesus, whatever deity part of him, would not have died. Jesus had to be 100% fully man to be able to die and, with, um, and to be able to be, to be fully man, to be able to die. So that leads me to my, sorry about that, it leads me to my next component, number four. Jesus had to die. This is one of those mysteries that I will never quite understand was the day that an eternal, immutable God died. Or was it just his humanity? Remember, Jesus said on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was his cry from the cross. Did God claim Christ's spirit when Jesus died on the cross? And after that, he descended to preach the gospel to those in Hades, as both Paul and Peter suggest. And then God returned him to his resurrected body. This is a question Unfortunately, I cannot answer. I like to think about it, but I can't answer it. But it is clear that when death claimed his body on the cross, death had no claim on him. The wages of all of mankind's sin was absorbed in the death, in his death, and were paid in full. God laid the iniquities of us all on him. Peter tells us that he himself bore our sins and he says this, in his body, he doesn't say in his spirit, he says in his body on that tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But his, by his wounds, you and I have been healed. It's his death that is essential to the gospel of Christ. Essential component number five, Jesus had to resurrect from the dead. Apologists love to talk about the historical evidence supporting the resurrection of Christ, but his resurrection had huge theological implications, which is obvious. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the last enemy to be destroyed, the very last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is exempted from all things because he's the one putting all things in subjection under him, who puts all things in subjection under him. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come, this, uh, come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrected resurrection rendered death defeated. Our greatest foe is death. It's not social justice, injustice. And death was defeated at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And finally, the last essential component is Jesus had to be glorified. Paul tells us that after Jesus humbled himself, he took on the form of a man, he died on the cross, that God um, highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To whose glory? To the glory of God the Father. God is glorified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If God was not glorified in the gospel that his son just accomplished, 
there'd be no way for you and I to bring any glory to God whatsoever. It is by way of the gospel of Christ that my life and your life has any capacity whatsoever to bring glory to God. He's glorified in the death and resurrection and the work of his son. It is the full gospel of Christ alone that can bring hope to a troubled society. The only social binary groups that exist in reality are those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the other groups are the group that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the ground at the foot of the cross is for all people because God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, and I don't care what segment of society you come from, whosoever believes in him, he shall not perish but have everlasting life. There are privileges conferred by way of the gospel for those who believe, such as becoming joint heirs with Christ. But these privileges are not conveyed by a society or a privileged group of powerful people. These privileges are issued by our creator who takes great delight in the gospel of his son and great offense to those who denigrate or dismiss the sacrifice of his son. It is a free gift. Thus, everyone can afford it so that God can be both the just and the justifier. This is his gospel. This gospel is forged in his blood. It's established by his power to redeem a rebellious people. It's crazy how we think we can go ahead and earn our salvation. We can't do it. It's God's work. And it's by his grace that you and I have been saved. It's through the work of his spirit, drawing people through faith. And that, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not a product of works, lest any one of us should boast. Now, you and I live in a fallen world. We will not be able to fix it. And here's the reason why we can't fix it. Because we are responsible for it. Now, we can be lights in dark places and salt, I like to say even salty, with those who are hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But true believers must speak out against injustices and engage our culture in such a way as to confront the cancer of sin. Because sin is destroying lives. We are compelled for the lost. We must rely on biblically informed definitions of social terms such as justice, oppression, partiality, racism, gender, sexual identity, and God's interaction, um, godly interaction with one another. And with this commission, we must go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to us. Not because we're so good or we're so impressive or we're so smart. He's given all authority to us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we just happen to be the benefactors of it. So may we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those who believe in the gospel of Christ. And as we do so, may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ give you both grace and peace. May all praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in heavenly realms because we are both equitably and equally united to Christ. May God be glorified.